Psalm 19 together. And this is a Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Okay, so we can see from David's words in verses 1 to 6 that God speaks to us through creation. Verse 1 tells us the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. And what a work it is. The root behind that word glory is to do with weight, something being weighty or impressive. Um, And the work of his hand implies not just power and ability, but care, precision and intricacy. And if you think about the heavens just for a minute and we consider just some of the things that are known about them, we can scarcely imagine the galactic grandeur of God. The following facts are taken from um, a blog by Christian writer Kevin DeYoung, who, who Daniel mentioned, an uh, excellent writer. I definitely recommend his books. Um, and he said this, Our sun is a mere 93 million miles from Earth. If the Earth were the size of a grapefruit, the moon would be a ping-pong ball about 12 feet away. The sun would be a ball of fire as big as a four-story building a mile away, and Pluto an invisible marble 37 miles out. So just to illustrate that, I think, to kind of get our heads around those numbers a bit, if you imagine that my office block just over there, um, the old Northern Rock Tower, that's like the sun blazing away, the whole size of it. And then we have, uh, this is the Earth here, so you hold that also. If Alice was standing about the A1, that would be the Earth. And then the Moon, we need somebody, Louisa, could you just grab this here? That's the Moon. And you're about four metres away from the Earth there. And I need a volunteer to drive to see, Alice just dropped the Earth, by the way. Uh, I need a volunteer to drive to sea houses of this marble to be Pluto. Okay, anyway, anyway, after the service. So you get, you get the idea. Um, if we wanted to go uh, from the Earth to the Sun in a plane going about 500 miles an hour, it would take about 21 years to get there. And if we wanted to fly up to sea houses to see Pluto, then that would take 900 years uh, in our plane. I know I'm confusing some people here. It's not that far away to sea houses, but you, know, you, get, you get the picture. And that's just a tiny part of our galaxy the Milky Way. Um, as of a few years ago, the furthest galaxy the Hubble telescope had been able to detect was 13 billion light years away from Earth. 
and that's 78 sextillion miles, if you're wondering, 78 with 21 zeros, and it would take us about 20 quadrillion years to fly there in that plane we mentioned. And by the way, that's not empty space. Um, the universe is full of stars. Our galaxy is 150 to 200 billion of them, and the Milky Way is just one of 150 billion galaxies. There are more stars in the galaxies of the universe than grains of sand on the seashore, and yet Psalm 147 says this, he determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Truly, the heavens declare the glory of God. And just to boggle your mind a tiny bit further, on a molecular level, the number of stars in the universe is smaller than the number of H2O molecules in this glass of water. Revelation says rightly, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And verse 2 to 4 points out this cosmic preaching goes on day after day and reaches every tongue on earth. There's nowhere that can't understand this heavenly sermon. It pours forth. Creation cannot contain itself, but constantly proclaims the glory of God. The heavens are bursting to tell us of their maker. And in verses 4 to 6, David starts to, to wax uh, lyrical about the sun. And being a shepherd, I guess, um, he spent many days in a blazing uh, sun, uh, blazing blue, under blazing blue skies with the sun shining. Um, and you see him describe the sun as rising at one end of heaven and making its circuit to the other. Now you might have heard people say that, um, especially in the media, or teachers tell you the Bible says the earth is flat and static. Um, and that's what the church taught until you know, clever scientists came along to prove otherwise. But that is not true. Bible doesn't teach that either the earth is flat or static. Here David is using poetry describing what the sun looks like from our standpoint on earth. In the same way that we talk about sunrise and sunset, we know what we mean. In travelling back from um, Holland to Newcastle on the ferry a couple of weeks ago, it was a really clear, calm evening, and we stood on deck and watched the sun sink into the sea. It was absolutely beautiful. The, the, the water became red, and it looked just like the sun was actually going into the sea. But of course it wasn't, but that's how you would have described it. Uh, and our local venerable Bede, he is here, um, 700 AD, he was a clever guy, he explained in his essay, The Reckoning of Time, that the variation in sunlight hours we experience compared to other parts of the world was due to the roundness of the earth. So those that would try and use Psalm 19 to somehow say that the Bible is unscientific, they really show more about their fierce desire to deny God and their ignorance when it comes to understanding poetry and history in the Bible. But what about you this morning? Um, when you see the blue sky or feel the warmth of the sun, do you praise your creator, God? When I was cycling to church this morning, I was just doing that, looking at the blue sky and just really enjoying the feeling of warmth. Um, not a great idea on a bike, actually. Um, so I apologise to that dog I almost ran over earlier. But there is something amazing about a blue sky and a sunny day that gets us really kind of waxing lyrical. Um, but it's not just the, the look of it, it's how it feels, isn't it? And that's what David talks about, that warmth on our bodies. On a recent climbing trip to Scotland, I was really blessed to get some um, amazing weather and the views of the skies and the mountains. They just really were awe-inspiring. It took your breath away. Um, although, as a point of balance, I should explain that it does usually look like this uh, when you go up to the mountains. But we do have an inbuilt sense of wonder that God's given us to ex as we experience some of the glory of God's creation. And it's important to remember that in, in other cultures, especially around Israel, people worshipped the sun. Um, in Egypt, it was the sun god Ra. 
In Mesopotamia, it was viewed as Shamash, the, the guarantor of justice. But David allows for none of that here. The sun is not to be deified. He reminds us that we don't worship creation. We worship the creator. Just as if you see a great painting, you marvel at the picture, don't you? You don't start praising the paint and the frame, saying, isn't it amazing how they came together? Well done to the frame for getting around that picture. And well done those painted colors splodging together to make those flowers and just to perfectly form that face. Of course we don't. When you see a great painting, we marvel at the painter. That's why if you go to Amsterdam right now, you'll find a whole museum dedicated to Vincent van Gogh that tells you all about his life and why he painted and when he painted. And so as we look at creation, don't marvel at evolution or the Big Bang or whatever current article of faith the media are using to deny God. Marvel at the amazing God who created it all instead. It's sad when God is denied his glory by the atheist belief system that everything made itself. The so-called from you to you that is so loved of television presenters like David Attenborough and Brian Cox. But you know, Paul tells us in Romans, there's no excuse for this. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Despite what our media would try and tell us, science has not disproved God. And the world, in fact, is not divided into people who are clever scientists who don't believe in God and sort of dim, naive people who do believe in God. And sometimes you might get that impression. But listen to these quotes. I think they're great. Albert Einstein, who, although he rejected the idea of a personal God, believed that there was a divine force behind the universe, complained, in view of such harmony in the cosmos, which I, with my limited human mind, Albert Einstein, I'm able to recognize there are yet people who say there is no God. But what makes me really angry is that they quote me for support of their views. The U.S. Academy of Science states, Science is a way of knowing about the natural world. It is limited to explaining the natural world through natural causes. Science can say nothing about the supernatural. Whether God exists or not is a question about which science is neutral. And then finally, listen to this what a Nobel Prize winner had to say about the origins of the heavens. This is my favorite one. The best data we have concerning the Big Bang are exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. And that was according to Arno Penzias, astrophysicist and Nobel laureate quoted in the New York Times. In September, we'll be doing a series looking at Genesis when we'll be thinking more about God's creation. So if you want to read more about that subject, can I plug a book, a good book called uh, Who Made God? It's not the easiest read, but there's lots of really good stuff in there and some of the quotes that I read were from that book, so I recommend that. Or creation.com is always worth a read. Some really challenging articles that maybe just kind of kick back against some of the dogma that we hear on our television screens day in, day out. We know that Romans 8 tells us creation is groaning. It's been spoiled by sin as well. But as David reminds us in Psalm 19, we still see echoes of God's good creation from the Garden of Eden. So on a really practical level, uh, why not, if you can, try and get out and look at the stars at night, maybe, maybe even tonight. Let's enjoy God's creation. It's one way that God speaks to us everywhere on earth. And let's remind other people, not just to marvel at the discoveries we've made at the galaxies, but to marvel at the Creator who, by His Word, brought it into being.
think Ecclesiastes sums it up really well. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So God speaks to us today in a general sense through the creation we can observe around us. We might call it kind of non-verbal communication. But next David talks about God's word and how God speaks to us in a much more specific way. This is not just a cosmic God who David worships at a distance. It's a covenant God who is near and has made promises to his people through his word. And what a word it is. Look at what he says in verses 7 to 9. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. In these verses we see the character of God's word. It's perfect. It's trustworthy. It's right. It's radiant. It's sure. And it's righteous. And then look at the effect it has on the reader. Revives the soul. Makes wise the simple. Gives joy to the heart. Gives light to the the eyes. And the idea of God's word um, reviving and informing is mirrored throughout the Bible. Isaiah talks about those that wait on God being um, their strength being renewed and soaring like eagles. Hebrews says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. But perhaps though, when we read words like um, commands, statutes and laws, they carry a kind of note of authority, the idea of some overburdening rule book. But the truth contained in the Torah that David read was to keep God's people from sin and to help them worship God. And even though today we're not under uh, the law, we're under grace, that's not an invitation to do what we like. God's truth puts in place safeguards that keep us from ruin. But in our kind of hedonistic, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone, it's okay culture, we can often get confused by the idea of God's truth putting limits on our freedom. People can tend to think it's just a set of rules that we're enslaved to. And indeed, so many of the world's religions um, follow just that pattern but the whole concept of law is fundamental to all life in our universe the stars and planets are subject to the laws of physics ants, bees, meerkats monkeys, all manner of creatures live in societies with rules give a ball to a bunch of children um, and pretty soon some rules will develop, the game might not take the form of any official sport but rules there will definitely be or else there is no game I don't know if you're familiar with the law of Bagsy or Shotgun or Jinx, um, but my children fiercely uh, follow those rules. And I'm sure if you speak to any of the children in church, they can give you a bit of a definition on that. Shotgun's very popular when it comes to getting the best sandwiches in our house. We also play garden ball at home, um, which has its own rules, constantly being refined, so that usually the kids have an advantage over their parents. Um, Alice is disagreeing there. Okay. But this need for rules is really all um, behind the fact that we're made in the image of God, the ultimate lawgiver. He commanded the universe into being. He put human beings under his law in Genesis 2, and then he puts creation under mankind's rule. His laws are essential to our lives and well-being. And that's why the Ten Commandments, for example, are to be found at the heart of any thriving society. We can see from the Old Testament and, I guess, from our own society that each person doing what is right in their own eyes is a recipe for disaster. And people in the business world, they understand this too. The, the managing director of the company that I work for, he's a man called Samir Brico. 
and he writes a, a weekly blog on the company website, like all kind of Uber bosses have to do these days. Um, and occasionally he says some really interesting thoughts on it. And one of them last year he said this, relativity applies to physics, not ethics. Wise words by a great theoretical physicist, Albert Einstein. His quote is a rejection of the idea of moral relativism. Einstein is saying that regardless of time and place, irrespective of a person's cultural context, social environment, and personal upbringing, there are some things that retain their moral value. Certain actions are always morally wrong, and certain ones are always morally correct. Truth, right and wrong, laws and limits on freedom, loving your neighbor as yourself, that's God's morality. These are the things we find in his word, and they set us free. And maybe contrast that a little bit with just what we read on social media, as Daniel's alluded to, popular websites, best-selling books in our shops, magazines, newspapers. Do they revive us? Do they bring us lasting joy? Do they give us reliable guidelines to follow? No, instead they change what is good or right or liked from one month to the next. After an hour on Facebook or Twitter or reading a newspaper, do we get up refreshed, full of good intentions, ready to bless others, to forgive, to show grace, to love our neighbors as ourselves? They rarely have the power to have that transforming effect on us. Psalm 119 is full of great verses about um, God's word. Your word is a lamp for my feet, it tells us, a light on my path. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So I guess if God's word revives us, if it gives us joy, if it teaches us, if it keeps us from sin, I wonder how we actually feel about it. I wonder how we actually treat it. What does David feel about God's word? It's more precious than gold. It's sweeter than honey. By them your servants warned, and keeping them there's great reward. You know, David realized that this is not just a book we have. It's not just a really good book. It's not just the world's bestseller, which of course it is. It's the living word of God. And in here is the truth that will set us free. Christians through the centuries have given us great examples of love for God's word. Um, William Tyndale, who was burned at the stake in 1536 for translating the Bible into English, uh, wrote this in a letter to the governor of the prison he was being held in. I entreat your lordship that if I am to remain here during the winter, you will be kind enough to send me from my goods a warmer cap, for I suffer extremely from cold in the head. A warmer coat, for that which I have is very thin. Also a piece of cloth to patch my leggings. My leggings were in in the 1500s. But above all, I entreat and beseech your clemency that you may kindly permit me to have my Hebrew Bible. Do we desire the Bible like that? Would that be the one thing more than any other we would take to a cold prison cell? At the start of the summer holidays, we um, got a a new Beano annual for Kirsty. She absolutely loves the Beano. It's important that you know that. And she spent all holiday, it seems, curled up reading the Beano morning till night. Um, and, yeah, just absolutely loves it. Reading it over and over, you know, ten times. You know, ask her, she'll give you chapter and verse. And one of the quotes of our summer in, in our house was when she announced over the top of her Beano, I do love a good Lord Snooty. And that appetite and joy in reading was really fun to see. It's really nice to see. But I only wish that I could have some of that passion for reading the Bible. We need to get our heads into the Bible, don't we? We need to have our minds renewed by the truth in these pages. And if we're honest, we know that we're crazy 
not to read it, not to think on it and let it wash our minds. So why do so many of us struggle with that? The Bible talks about life being a spiritual battle and the need to take up a cross daily, and that is never more true when it comes to reading the Bible. You know, I've lost count of the times when days have gone by without me opening the Bible, and then even after a short time of reading it, stopping and praising God, saying, this is amazing, I must read this more. Why do I not read this more? However, our good resolutions to do this often fail. But the Christian life is about constant new beginnings. If you've been poor at reading the Bible recently, well, join the club. But let's agree to start doing better from today. There's so many different ways of doing that now, isn't there? We've got apps on our phones and our Kindles, websites that give you access to multiple versions of the Bible, um, or ones that apply the Bible's teaching on current issues. I recommend to you coalition, gospelcoalition.org, for instance, gospelcoalition.org, some really great stuff on there. Um, but, you know, maybe for some of us, as Daniel kind of alluded to earlier, our gadgets can be a bit of a distraction. And maybe picking up a physical copy of the Bible and reading it is maybe the best thing for us to do sometimes. Um, maybe using daily reading notes, anything that helps you read this book. But keep fighting <clears throat> to have a time of Bible reading each day. Start small if you failed with your grand plans of 90 minutes or three chapters before work, whatever. But do keep trying. And certainly, and this should definitely be my reflection, don't kid yourself that you'll have more time for this at the weekend, or you'll have more time for it on holiday, or you'll have more time when this project of work is out of the way, or when you retire, or when this busy period in your life has passed. God is speaking through his living word. Are we giving it the attention it deserves? We've seen how God has revealed himself in a general way in creation, how he speaks to us in a specific way through his words. And now as we look at verses 12 and 13, we see God speaks to us in a personal way through our conscience. You know, human beings are unique in this. They have an innate ability to decide right from wrong. And yes, a person's standards of what is right may change as their thinking becomes corrupted by godless ideals, but they will still have moral standards. David treasures God's law as the ultimate standard and is acutely aware of his sin. And so we see God speaking through David's conscience. Who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. And remember, this is the king who the Bible describes as being a man after God's own heart, who prays because he knows he is prone to deliberate, willful eyes wide open sins in 2 Samuel the Bible records these words David was conscience stricken after he counted the fighting men and he said to the Lord I have sinned greatly in what I have done now Lord I beg you take away the guilt of your servant I have done a very foolish thing I bet we've all been there in our prayers haven't we and we see in verses 12 and 13 a sense of progression the conscience speaking to us firstly about our hidden faults and then holding us back from arrogant or willful sins so that we might not finally fall into great transgression as David puts it and as David knew only too well there's a pattern there of moving from hidden sins to open sins leading finally to great transgression and rebellion Carl Jung, the famous psychiatrist put it this way through pride we are ever deceiving ourselves that deep down below the surface of the average conscience a still small voice says to us something 
is out of tune. An example of just that um, was the confession made by the cyclist Tyler Hamilton, one of Lance Armstrong's teammates. He was also a drugs cheat on the Tour de France. And in a recent documentary, he talked about the burden of living with a guilty conscience. I hated it. Sure, from the outside, it looked like it was glamorous. Standing on the podium, that was nice. But you're really living a double life filled with secrets and lies. I was a mess inside. I worried about getting caught more than I thought about winning. And he talks about when he actually finally confesses, stands before a court and tells everything, just a massive weight off his shoulders. He could stand tall, he could walk down the street and feel like a human being again. The New Testament is full of teaching about the role conscience plays and the dangers of allowing our consciences to become corrupted. First Timothy talks about it being seared like with a hot iron. So I suppose the question for us this morning is what hidden errors do we have? Where is your conscience prompting you to confront sin? And when we see our brothers and sisters in Christ fall into the mess of open, willful sins, you can be sure that there's been a gradual progression. And those that finally turn their back to God don't do so suddenly, but due to a gradual sliding from hidden faults to open sins to outright rebellion. That's why God speaks to our conscience to hold us back. But it's only as we're alone with God, praying and reading the Bible, that our conscience gets the chance to speak up. So, are we giving room, time and silence for God to speak to you through your conscience? Or is there so much noise in your busy life that your conscience has become increasingly silenced? But alongside this, we also need accountability. The Bible tells us that the heart is deceitful. And the truth is, we often underestimate how sinful we really are. No one likes a stranger pointing at our faults, of course. But if we have reliable Christian friendships, we have those bridges where people can say to us, I'm not sure if that's the best course of action, or why are you doing that? Do we have people that we can turn to? Christian friends or family, people in this church that you would seek out for advice, or are you continually keeping your life private from anyone else, avoiding the sort of relationships that might expose those parts of your life you'd rather people didn't see? I would really encourage you, as well as coming to church regularly and mixing with church family, be part of a home group or get involved with space or a CU. Why not join up to home group in September when they start back? Remember, the isolated Christian is the vulnerable Christian. Make time this morning to listen to your conscience. Search your heart and see what hidden faults you're letting fester in your life. What weeds need pulling up? And if we start to see them sprout openly, in the lives of those around us, be ready and willing to take action. James tells us in his very practical letter, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. We need to reject the individualistic society that we live in that says, who are you to tell me anything? God's word tells us it goes much better for us when we listen to loving correction. So listen to God speaking through your conscience and through the godly counsel of other Christians. And then finally, um, David finishes off this psalm, acknowledging God is his redeemer. His faith in God was counted to him as righteousness, we read in Hebrews. 
you know, today we have the benefit of seeing how God spoke to the world through Jesus in a way that I guess David could never have imagined. And Hebrews 1 really sums it up perfectly. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So as the psalm comes to an end, we have thought about an amazing creator God who displays his glory in the universe. A God of wisdom who has inspired the words we find in our Bibles and are challenged by our consciences about the sin in our lives. Yet there is hope here that we can communicate with such a God. What does David say? What is his closing hope? May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. His hope is that God is his redeemer. A redeemer being a person who's bought back something. As we read in Hebrews 1, God has spoken these last days through our redeemer, Jesus. He allows us to come into a relationship with that same God. We've been bought back, redeemed, because a price has been paid for our sins, his life, for our life. And those same arms that were stretched out 2,000 years ago on the cross, well, they're still open today for anyone that will receive them in. So as we conclude Psalm 19, we realize the amazing fact that God is speaking to each one of us. Perhaps the surprising thing is this. God's glory is at its height, not when it's on display in the vast expanse of space, but when his children pray to him in response to God's love spoken through Jesus. Imagine the contrast between the sun rising across the vast skies, showing the glory of the Creator, and then the servant on his knees speaking to his Redeemer. So let's be really clear. God is speaking today. He speaks through creation on an ongoing basis. Marvel at it. He speaks through the wisdom of his word. Let's read it and learn to love it. He speaks through our conscience. Let's make sure we listen to it. And he speaks through Jesus' sacrifice. Let's make sure we've accepted it. God longs to have a restored relationship with men and women, with his creation, with boys and girls. He longs to hear us say the words of David in verse 14. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. God is speaking today. Are we listening? Okay, let's close by praising God for his creation and for his work on the cross uh, with our last song, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder. <laughs>